Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the executive director of Healthcare Voter. Healthcare is a personal issue for me because I'm a cancer survivor, and the care I received through the Affordable Care Act is one of the reasons why I'm alive and here today. And on our show, we answer your questions uh, with the experts, and also we dig into larger healthcare topics uh, that we're happy to educate you and each other on. So uh, with that, our first question today is uh, about... Uh, this uh, new pilot program that could privatize um, part or all of Medicare if uh, it's not stopped or severely limited. So Diane uh, from Just Care and Social Security Works, can you tell us about this pilot program with Medicare? Uh, what is it and who could be affected? Uh, thanks so much, Laura. Um, this is a new program that launched in April of 2021 that was started by the Trump administration. And the idea behind it was to quote unquote test uh, the ability of insurers and investors and other middlemen to quote unquote manage care for people in traditional Medicare. Uh, but really what it was, was a gold mine for Wall Street because the way Medicare pays in this program is it pays a fixed rate per person that the middleman, um, uh, whose care the middleman pays for. And that means that if you are in this plan, you may face uh, delays and denials of care. So let me explain a little bit more and then we'll have another um, a longer session to talk more about it. But for now, just be aware that um, these middlemen in traditional Medicare are very quickly buying up primary care practices. And if you are seeing a doctor in one of those practices, you may be part of what is being called now the ACO REACH program or the direct contract. In certain ways, nothing has changed for you in the sense that you can still go to see any doctor you want to see uh, anywhere in the country. And if you have supplemental coverage, almost all your costs will be covered. But your doctor now will be incentivized financially, most likely, to limit the care you get and to steer you to lower cost doctors and hospitals. So you need to be on your guard. And for now, what I'd like to do is just advise you that you should ask your doctor if your doctor is part of a direct contracting in. And um, if so, um, whether uh, your doctor has been directed to change the way he or she provides care to you. And you may want to switch doctors, honestly, to, um, to get a doctor who is not being um, directed by a Wall Street entity. Um, that is obviously not an easy thing to do, and continuity of care is really important. So um, you can also take it slow, but just be aware that you can still see any doctor you want to see, so long as you have the supplemental coverage to pick up costs that Medicare doesn't pay for. And you should hold on to that coverage as this experiment launches. 
um, and you see where um, your care is headed. Um, you may not be part of the entity now, but over time, uh, the Biden administration is planning to expand it to virtually everyone in traditional Medicare. Uh, right now, Social Security Works, Just Care, Physicians for National Health Plan are trying to stop the expansion of the program. Um, but so far, we have not succeeded. And uh, the Biden administration is going full speed ahead. They've simply renamed it. And they are um, hoping that uh, these Wall Street entities will will be providing and overseeing uh, the care that people in traditional Medicare have always been able to manage on their own. So really, if you wanna think about how this works, it's very much like Medicare Advantage uh, where insurers are in the middle, only in this case, you are literally assigned to one of these plans if you're in traditional Medicare. Um, you do not make the choice to go into it. You do have the right to opt out. So for now, I'll, I'll end with that and turn it back over to you, Laura. Thanks for that. And so this is something to keep an eye on, and we'll be talking about this in further episodes. Uh, our next question is about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Alica, uh, even though open enrollment is over for most people, uh, there's a special enrollment period for some folks. And can you tell us who's eligible and for how long do they have to sign up for health insurance? Great question, Laura. So as you know, now that the open enrollment period is over in most states, you are generally going to need a qualifying life event in order to enroll in coverage through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. Um, if you have one of those life events, generally um, you get what's called a special enrollment period, and you'll have 60 days to enroll and pick a plan. Uh, the most common reason you might have one of these qualifying life events is if you've lost coverage. Uh, for example, um, you had Medicaid or you had coverage through a job um, and you no longer have that coverage, that's a qualifying life event. Um, if you have a baby or an adopted child, that's a qualifying um, There are also life events that allow you to change plans or enroll um, if you've had coverage uh, already. For example, if you're going to move to a new zip code or a new state um, and you already have coverage, um, that will allow you uh, to get a life event and uh, enroll in a new plan in your, uh, in your new home. Um, one life event I do just want to highlight because it's new this year um, is that uh, later this month, actually, healthcare.gov and, and certified enrollment partners like HealthSherpa, where I work, uh, will launch a new uh, enrollment period for people with lower incomes. So if you expect that this year you're going to make about $19,000 if you're a single person, $40,000 if you're a family or four or, or less than those limits, um, you are actually going to be uh, permitted to enroll anytime during the year. Um, that's really exciting um, and, a, a, as I mentioned, a new opportunity. So if you think that might apply to you, stay tuned. Later this month, that opportunity is going to go live again, on healthcare.gov and, and also through um, uh, enrollment partners uh, like HealthSherpa and, and other folks out there as well. Um, but high mm -hmm. level, I would say the number one thing to remember about special enrollment periods is there are many, many reasons you might qualify. If you're not sure if you qualify, call healthcare.gov, give us a ring, find a local assister or broker to help you out. It's always worth that. Absolutely. And especially uh, people that have Medicaid right now for their health insurance may be losing that insurance soon because when the uh, pandemic declaration is over, which may happen sometime this summer, we don't know exactly when. So keep an eye on this, but we don't know when for sure. But at that point, if you make too much money to be covered by Medicaid anymore, you would need to get a new health insurance plan. 
And Alika, what should you do if you don't have health insurance now, uh, but you're not eligible for the special enrollment period? Great question. And you, you hit it on the head with Medicaid. Medicaid is a program that is available. It's a state-federal partnership um, that is available year-round to folks who make below certain income thresholds. Um, so generally, if you make less than about $1,500 in a given month um, as a single person, about $3,000 as a family of four, you are eligible for free or low-cost insurance, again, through that state. Um, that applies even if you think you're going to make a lot more money for the year as a whole, but right now you have an income change. Um, so again, same thing applies. If you're not sure if you qualify, it is always worth submitting an application. You can do that, again, on healthcare.gov. Um, enrollment partners, you can do it through your state Medicaid office um, or find a local assister to help you out. But always worth exploring that option because it can be a really great um, option. for Absolutely. And open enrollment will open up for everybody later this year, unless something changes from the administration. Well, stay tuned. Uh, our next question is from Dave. Uh, they want to know how safe is the Medicare trust fund? Diane? It's a good question. Um, we never really know. But what we do know is that over the last few decades, um, there have been projections about um, the the um, solvency of the Medicare trust fund that have been, you know, 10 years down the road and two years down the road. And somehow or other, um, it always seems to survive, um, either because Congress steps in and strengthens the Medicare trust fund or spending goes down or some combination. So while um, I believe the projection now is that the Part B trust fund um, will um be insolvent in 2026, um, that still gives Congress time to address this issue. And because um, a lot of voters are older people with Medicare, um, that puts pressure on Congress to behave as it should um, and um, strengthen the trust fund. But with, with the way things are going these days, you just never know. So um, Medicare has, is a national treasure, and um, let's just expect that Congress will... Absolutely. And it doesn't hurt if you're calling your senators and your congressperson about any other issue, like perhaps lowering the cost of prescription drugs. Also make sure that they have in their minds that they need to do something to shore up Medicare's finances too. Very good. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest, Geneva Stone from Little Lobbyists, who's going to talk more about Medicaid and home and community-based services. And with that, welcome Geneva. Thank you, Laura. Yes. So I'm here with my son, Rob, who is um, over here. And Rob is a fantastic wonderful young man who is uh, making a difference in his community by advocating with a lobbyist. And he is also an artist and a writer with his own art website. And he has been, he has been tremendously benefited by Medicaid's home and community-based service program. Um, these began for him when he was, he was a child and needed home nursing care. And um he these this you know helped him tremendously to survive and thrive in his community and as he went to school he was able to go to school with his peers i mean many people don't really know that not too long ago you know 10 15 20 years ago most kids with disabilities were sent to special schools or they were institutionalized rather than being able to remain in the community and go to school with their peers so Rob continues to thrive with now a, 
a new and different home and community-based services waiver that allows him to stay in the community as a young adult. Um, a lot of people also don't know that most children who have home and community-based service waivers um, lose them when they reach 21 and they have to reapply for different waivers that help them as young adults. So it, um, it's extremely urgent that these waivers are funded and funded appropriately. There are tremendously long waiting lists. I think I saw a statistic that something like 800,000 people nationwide are, are waiting on waiting lists for home and community-based services. So they're all at risk of institutionalization. I mean, nobody wants to live in an institution. Congregate care is extremely dangerous as we've seen during the pandemic. You know, tremendous numbers of people have died who have been in congregate care. And we certainly don't want that for any of our children. Uh, Laura, are there any questions or? Uh, well, uh, let's turn it over to Peter and then we can uh, ask questions of you both. Okay. Um, great. Hi, hi everybody. Um, uh, so it's interesting to think about um, the progression of home and community-based services and, and what we have now and what, what we didn't have before. And, and actually, in some ways, the story of home and community-based services is really um, part of my family's story. Um, so I have an aunt um, that I know her name, um, but I don't know much else about her. Um, and that's because um, she uh, was born with significant disabilities in another generation's time. And when she aged out of what little services and support she had um, in, in school, you know, my grandparents made the choice to institutionalize her. Um, so, you know, I don't really have many memories of her um, growing up. Um, but I have a cousin um, who was born with cerebral palsy and has other intellectual and developmental disabilities um, who was, you know, grew up in another time. You know, he's a little bit younger than me. Um, and he was able to stay, you know, home with his mom and his brothers and, and get the services and supports he needed um, to, to stay there and, and, you know, be educated in the school system um, with his peers and, you know, now lives, you know, independently as an adult um, uh, as well. So, you know, my, my family's, you know, sort of history is tied to the history of, of seeing what difference can be made by, um, you know, these types of services. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually lucky. I'm, I'm um, you know, I, I, I work, my employer, um, I, I'm a member of a union. <laughs> and, you know, my, new, my union negotiated um, really excellent healthcare benefits that um, as of right now, you know, I haven't had to use the home and community-based services. Um, you know, we were able to use um, my private paid insurance to, to cover what we need um, for my youngest son, Jackson. So I want to tell you a little bit about Jackson. So, so Jackson is your, you know, typical um, six-year-old, very strong-willed, um, you know, wonder where he gets that from, <laughs> from his mom and dad. Um, strong-willed child. Um, he actually loves going to school. He actually just this morning made a little school for all of his um, uh, uh, stuffed animals, stuffed wolves. So a school for wolves that he's created today. Um, he loves playing Nintendo and, and building Legos with his uh, big brother, Teddy, too. Um, but Jackson was also born with spina bifida, um, and he is one of those immunocompromised um, uh, folks that you read about in the news a lot lately, especially around the pandemic, um, and, you know, has uh, required several surgeries and uh, is actually um, potentially going to need another surgery in the next um, four to six months um, uh, as well. So, you know, he's someone who's going to require a lifetime of care. What they say about spina bifida is it's 
um, sort of the snowflake um, uh, uh, where, you know, no two cases are, are alike. Um, and we're always trying to find, you're always learning something new about Jackson. Um, but, you know, while, while um, we don't need those services now, he's, you know, Geneva mentioned the uh, waiting lists. Um, he's actually been on, he's six years old, <laughs> six and a half years old, almost seven, actually. Um, and he's been on the wait list uh, for, for six and a half years um, for services in Maryland. So, um, yeah, the, the wait list is a real issue where um, the services are underfunded um, and, you know, not people who not all the people who need access to those services actually are getting them right now. Um, but we know, you know, we were able to make really significant and, and strong investments in Jackson early on um, to give him the best you know, shot at, you know, happy, healthy, independent life um, living in the community of his own choosing, uh, you know, with with folks um, uh, that they that he wants to be with as well. Um, and, you know, in order to have that life, in order to have that um, support for him in the future, you know, he's going to need um, support um, with things like uh, he uses a walker and wheelchair or, or braces to, to get around. Um, he also uh, uses a machine that helps him breathe at night. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we, we don't know what LCA has in store for us as he, as he gets older and we're other, you're still trying to figure out what exactly types of supports and services he's going to need um, as he grows into, you know, a young man like Rob. And Rob, it's also great to see. It's been a while since the last time we we're up, actually up on uh, uh, Capitol Hill lobbying together. Teddy and Jackson uh, uh, had a great time with you. <laughs> um, there we go. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so, so you know, this is, this. hey, Rob. <laughs> so it's really, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a really important program. Um, it, it's, you know, severely underfunded. And then, you know, I think the other thing that a lot of folks don't know about, um, you know, these types of services, um, once you actually get them, you know, so keeping them is tough, as, as Geneva mentioned, sort of the transition when you turn 22, but also, you know, finding folks to provide the services is tough, right? So, um, you know, it is historically, you know, underpaid, um, an overworked um, workforce. Um, so, you know, that's why we need things like, um, you know, the Build Back Better Act um, and the caregiving infrastructure that was supposed to be a part of that, which would not only expand the services and the wait lists, uh, but also ensure the folks um, who are providing, you know, the high quality services and supports, um, you know, uh, are, are able to earn a living wage as well. So I, I, I know my family has had, you know, challenges f uh, finding the you know, the right staff uh, for to meet Jackson's needs. I'm sure Geneva can also share horror, horror stories about, you know, how, how tough it is to find someone to provide those care and services and supports. So tell me, and this, this question is for whoever wants to answer it. Uh, so each state, because it's Medicaid and it's state-based, not federal, each state handles their Medicaid a little differently, right? So are some states better uh, for people that need uh, home and community-based services? And does it have to do with money? I would say that that Maryland actually does quite a good job with uh, home and community-based services. There are a couple of different waivers for children. There's the model waiver in Maryland and the rare and expensive case management program in Maryland for children zero to um, 21. And then as children with developmental disabilities transition, from high school to adult life, there are community pathways waivers that are run through Medicaid that provide them with aids and equipment and um, other funding for their community needs, transportation, for example. And so Rob has benefited actually from each of those programs, but we were on a waiting list in Maryland for, gosh, I mean, it was six years or so. 
Um, and it was only when Robert needed uh, overnight care that we were able, able to get a waiver um, when he was at risk for aspiration pneumonia. And Rob, you, you could smile a little bit here. Rob's, Rob's a little bit nervous. I didn't talk very much about Rob's medical needs when we first started, started, um, started chatting just because, you know, I, I've just come to think of him as a person in his own right, you know, but um, he does have a rare disease. He has dystonia 16, which is a rare form of dystonia, which is a, a neuromuscular um, issue. And, you know, as time has gone along, Robert has, has uh, gotten a tracheostomy. He's J-tube fed um, and he's a wheelchair user, as you might be able to, to tell from here in the photograph. But, you know, a wheelchair is an awesome way of getting around, right, Robert? Robert's a little shy today. I'm trying to get him a smile. Um, but yeah, yeah. And finding, finding uh, workers to, to do this kind of work is, is tough. Maryland has uh, recently, in the Community Pathways Waiver, has raised wages substantially for um, people in the, at that program, and those are people over the age of 20. Uh, but still, the pandemic has really decimated this workforce. And I think nationwide, you know, we desperately need an influx of funds. We desperately need states to work harder on eliminating their waiting lists so that more children can stay at home where they belong with their families in their homes, getting the medical care that they need, and um, able to you know participate in school. Mm -hmm. And if I could just follow up on something Jim mentioned too, is the you know uh, Maryland you know Maryland does have a decent program, but there is wide variance across states, and and you know mm -hmm. what you qualify in one state, you may not qualify in, in for another state, or you know things are means tested or in, or otherwise income tested, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, in some states versus not in another. So, you know, we have family, um, uh, actually, uh, uh, Jackson's um, cousin, uh, spina bifida, and lives in Pennsylvania and automatically qualified based on the diagnosis um, for services um, there. Um, so, yeah, and that's, I think, one of the real challenges is that, um, you know, also we were told that the waiting list that we're on, like, we would never be eligible for because we were given bad information by the hospital Jackson was born in, right? So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we almost need, we have health navigators for just healthcare in general. You also need sort of health navigators to understand uh, the home and community-based waiver system too. It's so complex. Right. And I, I, I would add too, to what Peter is saying, that one of the things that people don't know about home and community-based service waivers is because it's Medicaid and they're state by state. Uh, for example, if, if we were to say one of us, one of us, Rob's parents, got a job in another state, and we tried to move to, say, Vermont, which is where I'm from, Robert would not be able to take his Medicaid home and community-based services waiver mm -hmm. with him to Vermont. He would have to terminate his status in Maryland, and then he would have to reapply in Vermont for services and possibly wait months, if not years, before he was, he was taken on, which, which affects parents' uh, mobility. And there have been proposals in Congress to try to try to make Medicaid waivers uh, transportable. But, you know, right now it's not. They're not. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that that people could use. I mean, you know, we're a we're we're a nation. People change jobs. They need to move for personal reasons or family reasons as well. And um, some families, some families can't or they can't take jobs in states that have don't have good Medicaid services um, because they simply can't afford it. They would be bankrupted by the medical cost. Mm -hmm. And Diane, <laughs> you had something to add? 
Yeah, I just wanted to chime in because um, I think, Laura, your, your question about variations among state really hits home. Um, sometimes I think, um, just picking up on what others were saying, that we're the independent states of America and not the United States. Um, it's even healthcare, right? Um, just more generally, you can't often get healthcare out of your outside your community. So if your work involves traveling, you know, from one state to another, um, one CEO of a small business told me it was easier for his employees to get care abroad than it was in another state. You know, but they're flying; they're pilots flying from one state to another. I mean, it's really, really shameful. But the other big variation between states, in addition to sort of eligibility and resources for uh, home and community-based services, is that um, many states now, maybe the majority, this I don't know, and so this is the question, um, rely on um, corporate entities to to provide the coverage. And um, what I've been reading suggests that Um, people in those states are not getting the kind of comprehensive care that people in states um, with um, Medicare, Medicaid provided public. Can someone speak to that? I'm not sure uh, how Maryland is set up. Has Maryland done work to privatize Medicaid or is it a public benefit? Um, The programs, the the adult programs are run are run by non nonprofits for the most part. Um, I don't think Maryland has done too much to corporatize Medicaid that I'm aware of. Now, some of the the institutional care programs in Maryland that are run through Medicaid are are run by by corporate entities certainly. But as far as as far as I'm <clears throat> I'm aware, you know the the medic. I mean, say if you require nursing services, well. You're going to be working with with a nursing services provider, and those are uh, de- it just it just depends on which which nursing service you're working with, as to, you know who's ultimately ultimately um, paying for it. But um, but no, I mean Maryland has not been moving to corporatize things, which I think is 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 wonderful because I do think that 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 care declines when you're just looking at the the profit margin. Yeah, could I just add to that too? I, I think you know this is one of the challenges, right? Is that the the funding formulas um, for how how the dollars are spent and allocated to the state um, always, you know, uh, you get more money to institutionalize someone, right? Even though it costs less to provide care. Um, at home in the community um, for folks with complex medical needs and disabilities, you know, the system is so far out of whack that um, prioritizes, and I believe as Diana mentioned earlier, sort of the corporatization and, and the giveaway to Wall Street, you know, many of these folks operating these institutions or, you know, group homes are, you know, multi-million dollar businesses, right? And, and some of them are own, partly owned or wholly owned, um, you know, by uh, vulture capitalists and head funds. Um, and, you know, they're actually really just a property holding company that um, operates, you know, homes uh, in order to turn a profit while they're waiting for a neighborhood to flip and then will flip their home, right? So ca- uh, causing the housing crisis as well. So, I mean, the system is so far out of whack um, to uh, uh, drive towards institutionalized care in, in all its ways, right? And, and it shouldn't be this hard. You, you mm-hmm. shouldn't require a PhD in, in um, healthcare policy in order to get your kid or your family member, or your loved one, um, what they need to stay home um, in their community, 
Um, you know, it shouldn't have to be this way. And, you know, the richest country in the world. And, you know, this should not be a conversation that we're having right now. But, you know, this is where we are. Yeah. And if, if I if I can illustrate that a little bit, I remember going to going to Annapolis a few years ago before the pandemic. And I was I was uh, discussing the the lower costs of home care alongside uh I think it was Bayada, it was a nursing company that was um, trying to increase wages for nurses in Maryland, which, which actually happened. And I really got the attention of legislators when, when we talked about what happens with home care and how the costs are reduced. Because sometimes legislators are just looking at the fact that, okay, you can have, instead of having one nurse serve one person at home, you can have one nurse serve like four or five people in an institution. However, when you look at it a different way, I mean, institutions, you're also paying for the brick and mortar upkeep of the building. You are paying for someone to open up all the supplies and stock them in the right places. You're paying for someone to cook. You're paying for people to go over the massive correspondence that's involved with managing someone's medical care and their social activities. I mean, I can certainly attest to that this as a parent, and I'm sure Peter can as well. You know, you have parents and relatives doing this at home. You know, you don't have to pay cleaning service to come and clean, <laughs> clean our house. I mean, that's up to us, right? Uh, so, so there are all of these attendant costs to maintaining a building and a huge staff that go away when you're doing home care. Although maybe they should pay us for following all the paperwork we have to do to, to get everything right. Well, um, in self-directed services in, in Maryland, and this is a this is a home and community-based program for um, for for adults. Robert is in self-directed services, meaning that he gets to decide what he wants to do with his own day. He's not receiving services from a traditional uh, provider who offers a suite of activities, for example, there, there's a movement to, to, to equalize some of those things so that um, as, as uh, young adults like Robert get older and they need more supports, they can have someone assigned to be the administrative person and receive, <laughs> receive some funds. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I would say that on the whole, on the whole, Maryland is really a model state for home and community-based services. I mean, yes, waiting lists are still long, but when you look at the programs, they 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 do a good job and and they're robust. But you know, I, I mean, Peter and I are for, are fortunate that we've only had to endure significant waiting lists. That once we're in in services, that um, you know things are going relatively well. And and Maryland really prioritizes the needs of disabled people. I would say on the whole, I don't think it's perfect. No state is, but. Um, more states ought to look at what Maryland is doing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Geneva and Peter and Rob, for being on the show today. Uh, to conclude, right now, Congress has an opportunity to put more funding towards home and community-based services in whatever they're calling it now. I think it's uh, Building a Better America, um, the uh, budget reconciliation package that Congress uh, may be working on soon they could do something to fund the care that our families need. So uh, do you have any, should people contact their senators? What would you suggest for people to do? Absolutely. Contact your senators. I mean, Maryland, um, while they're doing a good job with the funds that they have, 
we definitely need more funding. We need to get people off those waiting lists. We need to make sure that that people with complex medical needs can stay at home all the way through their adulthood. Um, and that's that's a challenge that Maryland is facing right now in terms of long-term supports and services. Um, we're doing a pretty good job, you know, keeping kids in their communities if they can get services through childhood and into early adulthood. But but gosh, I mean, you know, think of the states, think of the states where people are waiting. Think of the states where workers are underpaid. You know, and these are women of color. These are often recent immigrants. I mean, people are paid as little in some states as like eleven or twelve dollars an hour to provide home care. You know, we should really be looking at, wa at wage wage um, wage ranges of twenty five to fifty dollars an hour for this kind of work. It's it's really complex, and it is skilled labor, and it is it can be a great job. You know, if we can pay people what they what they deserve and provide them with the ben benefits that they need, I mean, taking care of Rob is a joy. Rob is a little sleepy right now. I was trying to get him to, get him to smile. He's listening to all of this and, and he's I know he's concerned, like what's going to happen to me? Right. You know, that's on the mind of tens of thousands of people with disabilities and the family, the family members who love them. You know, what will happen long term? You know, we deserve to live at home. We deserve to stay in our communities. We deserve to contribute. Absolutely. And Peter, anything to add? Uh, yes. Um, call, write, text, tweet, Facebook, uh, your member of Congress, um, ask them to support investments in, in caregiving infrastructure. Um, you know, uh, it's, we have worked hard in, in every, you know, Geneva and I are just, you know, two families of millions of Americans, you know, um, uh, like us, um, you know, who work hard every day to, you know, fight the system to get what they need to keep their family member, their loved one home with them in the community. Um, and it shouldn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and, you know, if we can invest in um, the build back better version 6.0 or whatever we're on, and, and really do this, then, um, yeah, I mean, you know, my son Jackson is going to need these services um, growing up um, into a young man like Rob and, and others. And um, so uh, uh, we're all, we're all kind of everybody to do the right thing here. Absolutely. Well, thank you everybody for watching. This is care talk. Be sure to call and text in your questions and we will answer them in future episodes and we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you.